I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest is Ron Lautenbach, a local celebrity, if I can say so, uh, a mountaineer and a really interesting person, a poet and a fountain of wisdom of various kinds. And we're here today to talk about his thoughts and experiences in mountaineering and anything else you'd like to talk about. So welcome to Delving In. Thank you, Stuart. So first of all, I just want to express my appreciation personally for your leading me up to the Oregon Needles, not just once, but twice, once as a day long and once as an overnight. And really memorable experiences for me. I think the last time was about 15 years ago, something like that. And really special. And I, I really loved not just the mountain, but your leading us up the mountain and your attentiveness to the other uh, hikers and being very, very uh, attentive and sweet about the whole experience that it really made the, the experience very special. Calling me sweet uh, <laughs> may be a stretch, but uh, I thank you. Let's start with, with how you started climbing and maybe you want to give some background before you started climbing. Uh, how did it progress? I and mean, how did you get the idea and how did it progress? I've been asked that quite a few things. And let's start with uh, what I consider the funny. I was interviewed many, many years ago about, by the New York Times, and they asked me, when did you get started climbing? And I answered, at birth. <laughs> and the interviewer said, what do you mean at birth? And I said, yeah, the doctor dropped me on the floor and I had to climb up the umbilical cord to get slapped on the ass to breathe. <laughs> and they printed it. That's hilarious. I've always been an athlete, and I grew up in Michigan ran around bare feet in forest, swimming raging rivers, climbing haystacks, uh, you know, working on farms, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so it was very active kids. In fact, I tell people I was ADD before it was invent invented, and my teachers, I feel sorry for them, but uh, <laughs> uh, I hope they forgive me now. But anyway, I was always into sports. Uh, hockey and baseball were my two sports, but I loved nature. My friend Larry and I, we always went into the woods and daily if we could, you know, and, and we learned a lot about the plants and about the animals and, and everything. All four seasons, whether it was cold, whether it was hot and whatever. And then I developed into nature, wanted to do something better. So I took a rock climbing class, which was a disaster, and vowed I would never become a mountaineer or anything like that in my life. And that was up in Colorado, and the guide was just really terrible. Then when I came down here in 1983, I was looking for something to do, and I discovered uh, a different a man and a woman who had a climbing gym up in Albuquerque. And um, Barry and Rita were their names. Um, he's not alive anymore, but she was in the top 20 women climbers, rock climbers in, in the United States, and Barry was in the top 20. And, so, and they taught me, and I really liked it, and I took all their classes and went out with them, and, and then uh, took on lead climbing and so forth and so on. And then I told Barry, I said, um, I want to do ice climbing. I want to go and do mountains. And he said, we don't do cold. And so then they turned me over to uh, 
I can't remember the name of the group. I think it was called Fantasy Ridge. And I went and took some mountaineering classes, and that's how it started. So I started in New, in New Mexico. So it sounds like you had a, a feeling for adventure and nature. And it also sounds like you didn't have a whole lot of fear of heights. Uh, but I'm wondering, was that a mistake? Is, is that two, true? Two things there. Um, first of all, nature is is probably my theology, or at least a uh, discipline that I've had ever since, uh, for, for even even as a youth. I, I, I just found my peace, found found my balance in 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 nature, and not only did I study it, I, I lived it in in that. And, and that just evolved into um, a love for more and more and more. Now, when someone asks me if I'm afraid of heights, I usually surprise people and tell people I'm, re- I'm respectful of heights. Okay. Many times in my climbing, I have been temporarily scared. And we teach people to respect the mountain, respect the heights, but be able to control our fear. I can remember numerous uh, things, you know, where I was ice climbing uh, one time and, and, and I got in the, and the ice broke and, and, and one side of my ice axe was just hanging in the air and I'm hanging on with one hand on there. And yeah, I was scared, very scared, but then you, draw upon your preparation. And that's another thing. If you don't do the right preparation, uh, you have no business being there. I mean, one of my biggest pet peeves, Stuart, is these people that are climbing the big mountains like Mount Everest and and, and things like that, they shouldn't be there. And the only reason they're there is because they have a boatload of money and it's disastrous. But yes, I do get scared of heights but I, 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 I control my fear. Yeah, maybe that's the better question is how do you control your fear? I mean, you say it's from preparation. Is that enough? No, it's not. One has to rely upon what I call the uh, inner qualities of the mountain. And, and you know, you have to be prepared, but you have to know a couple of things. You have to know that nature is much more powerful than you and your quest. And you, you need to know when nature says, today's not the day, you're going to go down there and so you back down. The other thing you have to realize is that you have to be able to, in a, in a time of emergency or even uh, trauma, is what part of my preparation am I going to call upon at that time? It's in, in that little article that you read that I wrote uh, on there, we learn or we get exposed to about 72 different knots, but we only use four of them <laughs> on a daily basis. So when something happens, I have to be able to control my fear, control uh, what's going on to pick the, the proper one. And, and so when you say, is that enough to be prepared? No, because my preparation has to fall in alignment with what the mountain's giving me. Maybe as I'm uh, putting my hands up to 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 to, to do a hard uh, movement on there, maybe nature's going to tell me move over six feet, go somewhere else, or 
there's these exogenous factors. Um, we were asked to climb above the Gila cliff dwellings, which you can't climb, but we were, we were because of historic uh, preservation mm -hmm. right, and, so, and right. so forth and environmental. But they hired four of us to go up there and do an eagle and hawk uh, count one time. And as I was raising my hand up to do a, a move up there, an eagle came down and kind of dived at me and I uh, retracted my hand. And then I waited a few seconds, caught my breath, went up again, eagle came back again, did the same thing. And then it came down, the eagle, and it picked up a rattlesnake right where I was going to put my hand. Uh, is that divine intervention? I think it's the spiritualism of the mountain, of the cliff in there. And I believe in that. I believe in that. That eagle saved my life, or at least a bite. That's amazing. Now, you got started climbing quite late compared to other climbers. Was in my 40s. Yeah. Yeah. Was that an advantage or a disadvantage? Great question. The physical, probably the, 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 the physical readiness is probably should have been started later, but I, I, I had the physical uh, tuning because I was an athlete. Uh, respect for nature, it was better to be older. I had a time to get away from my ego. I had time to get away from let's conquer a mountain and, and really respect what was going on. And now every time that I took on a climb, I would look into the history of it. I would look into the culture of it. I would look into what it's going to take to form a team. Uh, and these are things that a lot of the modern climbers don't take into consideration. And like uh, climbing um, what is called Denali, and it was most people knew it as Mount McKinley up in in Alaska. And I took on, and we even went up and visited a shaman up in Alaska, who taught us a lot about what Denali meant to the native um, people of Alaska. And also we took some, um, about a week-long course on in herbs and different things, you know, that helped us when we were on it. And the, re the reason I bring that up is that, to me, that's more important than just getting a permit to go climb. So you came to climbing with a certain uh, amount of lived wisdom, which couldn't have heard very much. It really helps to, to have that, to uh, know, not just to know what you're doing, but know what your limits are and, and not attempt something that's really unreasonable in terms of the danger. Exactly. And I have a, a belief that that humor in life is very important. Uh, and, and, and I think I realize that the majority of people uh, don't use humor enough. I used to be uh, a member of the International Humor Society. And everybody thought we just sat around the fireplace and, and uh, told jokes. But actually, it was very serious about uh, how to use uh, humor uh, at the end of death or people that were in hospice or whatever, how to use it in the workplace, how to use it with uh, difference in, in languages. And 
one of the most difficult things were how to take a joke in the English language and tell it to someone who's in Czechoslovakia or, 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 and things like that because they, so much of our humor is based upon history and culture and, and so forth. But we had a group that, of the seven-person team, a mountain climbing team that I was on, we use humor to the point where we respected each other enough to say, I can tease you about anything without mm -hmm. you coming back on me. For instance, if, if I were to say something negative about your wife, you're going to come down at me pretty badly. And, and there, but up there, a lot of the humor was on we would fall or we'd get injured, we'd cut ourselves, you know, and we'd, we'd make some stupid remark. In, or somebody would fall 40 feet or something like that, which could have um, resulted in death. We would make fun of it in there. And that kind of relieved the stress of the, of, the, of the moment. I don't know if we have time to tell you about when one of my teammates fell into a crevasse. And we had seven people, and we had two rope teams, one of four and one of three. And the three was the advanced teams. And we all, we all were lead climbers. And on this particular time, the one in front fell into a crevasse, and the rope broke. And I was second in line, so they lowered me down into there the length of a rope, and he wasn't there yet. So they lowered mm -hmm. another rope, a second rope down, and they tied it, went down two and a half lengths of the rope. Now, each rope is about 160 feet and done it. Anyway, we got him up, and I have to divert there. Weight is one of the major considerations in carrying your packs, and we carried 130 pounds, 80 on our back, and we pulled a sled of 50. So food... We would have a little piece of cheese about as big as the tip of our little finger, and we would get that. That was our candy. That was our luxury meal once every three days. So we got the guy that had fallen into the crevasse, and that night we were sitting around the uh, um, stove, and we were making our meal, and guy from uh, Europe said to the guy that fell in, he says, uh, no. The guy that fell in the crevasse said, uh, Ron, uh, I really love you for saving my life today. But I like him better because he gave me his piece of cheese. I see. And so we would make, uh, that, that way we could kind of balance out the death. That guy could, when I got to him, he was comatose. He was out. It's amazing. So I guess the, the rope really broke his fall, even though it broke at the end. It, it slowed him down enough. Oh, yeah. It was a narrow crevasse, and uh -huh. he was wedged in. In fact, when I got down to him, I had to take my ice axe and actually pick him out of the... Uh, wow. I mean, that sounds absolutely terrifying. It is terrifying. I mean, even more for the others than for him, because he's you know doesn't have time to be terrified, I would think. Maybe he's just terrified for a split second, <laughs> over however long it's, it's it takes to fall terrifying. 40 feet. But for everyone else, I mean, you must have thought you lost him. Well, I did when I got to him, and he... He had he had uh, he was cut, but he was able to put his head up against the ice, and it kind of froze, uh, stopped the blood from bleeding. And even though he was comatose, he was breathing, breathing. Uh, you, you know, and so 
And yeah, it took us about three some hours to to get them out, pull them up. And then at that point, did you have to go down the mountain? No, uh, we were far enough up <laughs> that we we took them to basic uh, to where we had uh, put up our tents, and we mm-hmm. communicated with the other team, and they came and, and helped us. We were tired; we were dragging, so they came and. By that time, he was up and walking and everything, you know, and didn't have any broken bones. He was just scratched up. And but you must have had a concussion. Yeah, he did have a concussion. So you don't want to climb in extreme conditions with a concussion. No. Well, we took him to where the thing is. We took a day of rest. And we, we were hourly trying to consider whether or not we were going to go down or whatever. And he, he came out of it. And he did well. And then there were other times when you found someone in a crevasse who didn't do so well, right? In, in Denali, it was a, it was it was on Denali, and uh, we had been told by radio uh, that that a team had gone up there, and there were ten of them in their team. I, I believe it was ten, and um, they ran out of food. And seven of them did the right thing. They went down. Three of them decided they were going to go up and try to summit. Anyway. Was, anyway. Anyway. Yeah, which was disastrous. And we got called to delay our, uh, we were going to do, we were at what, what was called summit day. You have very light packs. You go up to the summit and you say your rah-rah and take picture and then you come back down. Okay. And we got a call to go see because these three Asian people were, were missing. So um, three of us uh, went looking for them and uh, we, we did uh, find one. one. One had fallen into a crevasse and was dead when we, when we got to him. Another person uh, was, was missing and we found him just... Um, aimlessly walking around, no rope, no nothing, just... Uh, delirious. Yeah, delirious yeah. Uh, on there. And we got him down. He he died about six months later after we got, got him home from, from injuries. And the third person was actually frozen to the ground, and, 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 and he was dead too. Well, that must have been so awful to, to witness. It's very awful uh, to to witness, and again, your training, and this is your mental training. You you have to deal with that. Um, you know, those you have to be prepared for that possibility. You have to be prepared. You have to be prepared that it might be you, and your next step might be your last. The uh, the other thing is is you may come upon someone, and one of the biggest thought processes or choices you have to do is, is that let's say that you're up above 20,000 feet and the oxygen is very scarce and you've got your own safety to, to consider and you find someone that's struggling. Now, mm. do you help them at the possibility of having a negative impact on you that you won't make it? Then you really have to, you really have to pull upon your mental, your heart, uh, uh, thinking, you know, to process whatever. That's a huge decision. Now, one of the things that of, of teams that I climbed with, we went through not only physical training, we went through mental training. 
you know, we were told uh, all this could happen. Another thing, Stuart, that happens too is that um, everybody thinks that you survive, you, go, you get up to the summit, you come back down, that nothing happens. People don't realize that there's bacteria, even though you're up that high. Bacteria in the snow, bacteria in the air, and something like that. Or it may have something to do with your bone structure. I, I mean, I'm 81 years old now, and, and you know, a couple of years ago, I was having uh, pelvic floor tilt, where my whole pelvic thing, I think I told you this once before, shifted. Uh, I mean, and it was, uh, I was told by the doctor uh, that it was because of my carrying all that weight and, and, and mountain climbing. So people go up there and you get the most unexpected things that will happen to you on a, on a daily basis. You think you have all the medical gear with you and the one thing you need, <laughs> it's not there. What do you yeah, do? Incredible. One of the things that you were we're getting at just a moment ago is that you have to be willing to to die or, or at least expect that you might die. And I remember you're talking about your preparation for, and, and, and you're being chosen for going to Denali, that that was one of the questions, I think, that the leader had to, that, that the leader asked is, you know, are you ready to die? Not only the leader, but in, in our preparation, when we were talking to a, a mental specialist, you know, they 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 told us that there where we were going to go, uh, whether it was on Everest or whether it was on Aconcagua or or Denali, is that do you have all your life insurance in 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 in, <laughs> right. in, in uh, uh, proper order? Do you, does your immediate family know that you're going to do this? Do they agree or disagree with you? And uh, the last question that they say is that, do you know that your next step, you could die? And it's, it's very easy when you're sitting in a plush uh, office and to say yes. And then the psychologist will look at you and say, okay, you just agreed to do this. Do you really mean it? And, and you know, that kind of sets you back. And, and you know, uh, I got divorced over mountain climbing from my first wife because Kodak, who was sponsoring us, would send a letter to uh, all of our immediate families and say, there's a 76% chance that Ron's not coming back. 76% that you're not coming back. That you're not coming back. It's amazing right. that you would be willing to do that. I was, but my family was not willing to accept that. And I don't want to get into a lot of the okay. situation there about family. Yeah. But the, the point of your question and, and my answer is, is that I guess there's a little bit of, um, I don't want to say ego, but just saying damn to the truth. <laughs> And, 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 and then that's, that's why I say is that when you get on the mountain and these things happen and things aren't, aren't going quite right, that moment when the man is asking you, do you really mean this? It comes back to you. And, uh, and in that moment, are there regrets? <laughs> I always found that question fantastically interesting. Uh, and, and to me, um, regret is a word that I've learned to forget. <laughs> <laughs> the, 
the drive, especially once you get on, on the mountain, the drive just takes over. And the energy is just telling you, you can do this. You're prepared for this. You, uh, you are strong enough. For instance, when someone would get sick, normally you go to the doctor and we'd say, we'd say hey, we got to climb now. And, and, and so you do it. And so did I regret it? I regretted it more once I got down off the climbs. And this is where it becomes really interesting to me because I regretted possibly what I did to friends or what I did to family or what I did to the unknown to my body. Because when I got down from, from, from Everest, from Denali and everything, you know, I was hurting. <laughs> I'll bet. And, and everybody else was hurting. Okay. You just put it out of your mind when you you're doing it. You just put it out of your it, mind yeah. while you're doing it. Mm -hmm. and, and that's where it becomes really interesting too, because if you dwell on it, you're not going to go any further. It's going to stop you. So it's interesting, in your writing, you talk about uh, that you're not the typical mountain climber, you're not super buff, you're not uh, macho, you, you're not into conquering the mountain, and yet there must be some ambition in there somewhere, right? Maybe it's not so ego-driven, but there's, there's certainly a, a feeling of, I would imagine, of needing to challenge yourself. There is an awful lot of ambition. Uh, you, you, you can't get away from that. But the definition of ambition changes in my mind. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a skinny old guy, all right, and, and that's your normal. But it's more mental than that. As I've said in the writing, is that the traditional answer to when they ask somebody why they climb, they say, I want to conquer a mountain. My belief is that you never conquer nature. And as I, I said a few minutes ago, nature is more powerful than you are. I feel that I have been invited by the mountain or more by the spiritual energies to be there. And they actually are helping me direct that energy. You know, I don't want to get into the quantum mechanics of this, but I have a definition for it. But, you know, this is maybe another time, another mm -hmm. uh, discussion or whatever. But I believe that my energies are being directed to overcome some of these negative forces of the mountain. And am I ambitious in that? You bet I am. Absolutely I am. But in that ambition, do I respect the mountain? You bet. I actually talk to the ice. I actually talk to the pieces of rock. I actually meditate with them. And in the meditation, I find I can concentrate. I can focus my energy to help me get through that. And that energy focus is greatly respect for the mountain respect for the spirits, respect for the history. And I remember what the shaman said. Uh, he says, you're going in a place where spirits are going to wonder why you're there, and you have to get their permission. And I believe that. So you're not just on the mountain, you're with the mountain. With the mountain. You're sleeping with it. You're loving the mountain. You're, right. you're, you're singing. And, and you know, I think, I think you read that thing about that little honey pot we had. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we had a little jar of honey. Stupid plastic thing with honey in there, and we would put honey uh, in, in all that bland food that we had, you know.
And this, this uh, honey jar was kind of our emblem. And I think I wrote a bit kind of like the Vikings had there on their ship uh, bow, you know. And we would want to carry this honey jar on there. It was a emblem of uh, guidance, of power, of uh, positiveness, you know. And um, one time the, the honey jar um, went missing. And, and, and we got what's called a Mountaineer's Depression. <laughs> we sang songs to that silly thing. We would hold it. We would pass it around, you know, and, uh, on a grown man doing stupid little things. But it wasn't stupid. Like the, it, was, it was more like a theology to us. You know, that's why my association to that story, which I, I don't know if this is probably a little bit of a stretch, but the movie that Tom Hanks is in uh, called Castaway, where he makes friends with the, oh, right. with the, with the volleyball with Wilson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Wilson yes. becomes totally alive in his mind. And he's heartbroken when, it, when he loses Wilson on his uh, you know, final part of the, the uh, rescue. Fantastic example. Uh, I mean, yeah, we, we found it exactly the same way. And we found it one day, and one of the one of our climbers on our team, he had hidden it so that he right. could have it in his back. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure that generated a lot of humor. <laughs> it did. Yeah, it, it really did. Yeah, it yeah. seems like you really need that kind of lightheartedness because it's so darn serious, I mean, having to survive under such conditions. And I'd like to actually read just a little excerpt of what you sent me. Uh, when asked to talk about reasons why people climb mountains, I believe the implicit question asked but afraid to actually say is, you seem to be a rational, normal person. Why would you put yourself in danger of temperatures that are minus 60 degrees Fahrenheit, not take a bath until it's zero degrees out, wash yourself with snow, carry 130 pounds on your back for weeks with only dehydrated food to eat, and be fully aware that your next step may be your last on Earth? Before anyone says anything, yes, I am a rational person. At least I believe I am. Yes, and and that and, and, and that is so true. Even even as recently as about two weeks ago, I was telling somebody uh, we were just talking about doing basic rock climbing, and I was called an insane idiot. <laughs> and and you know now, I would call someone who is an accountant doing numbers that are so boring to me an insane idiot. So what is rationality, as I said in that quota of mine that you said, is different for me than it is for someone else. I understand that 99% of the people, when they hear of the adventures that I chose to do, they're going to call me nuts. And, and I laugh along with them. I mean, it's called an extreme sport for a reason, isn't it? <laughs> it is. <laughs> To give you an example, another example, um, some uh, people have asked me, you must never fall. Oh, I've fallen a lot. But roped in. But, but roped in. Except yeah. for the one time you told me about before you started climbing and you fell off, what, a roof uh, doing a mural? <laughs> oh, yes. That was back in 74. I was on a three-story building. Took me a week and a half, I guess, to paint this mural. And after I thought I was done, I stepped back. The ladder wasn't there, and I fell down three floors, uh, three stories, into a really thick uh, rose bush. In fact, when the ambulance came there, I was still out, knocked out, you know. And 
they had a hard time telling the rose petal from, from the blood. It's <laughs> incredible. And, and somehow, even though you had an experience of a serious fall, I mean, maybe you didn't remember it. I don't know, because you're... I didn't wake up a... until I was in the hospital. Right. But do you, yeah. rem do you remember the fall itself? Not really. Yeah, so that, that's uh, maybe why you were able to climb. <laughs> I'm... I'm really suspicious of ladders. I don't like ladders. Uh -huh. And you know, you have Ropes to... are okay, but not ladders. Well, you when you when you go to um, uh, Everest and when you go to some other places, you you use uh, ladder, ladders to get over the ice falls uh -huh. and stuff like that. And and yeah, I was real suspicious of that. And and, and uh, you know, that was that was my uh, caution flag. Yeah. Yeah. Another really incredible thing that I read of, of what you sent me is how to ice climb. That You said that you were only a fairly good uh, rock climber, but you were an excellent ice climber. Somehow you were able to really understand the properties of the ice. And some of these descriptions are just incredible, you know, that you have to pay attention to how thick it is. And if you go all the way through, then the water will gush out and freeze you to death. <laughs> just incredible stuff. <laughs> How, how does anyone do this? Well, that's why if I were ever to do that now, I would not tell my daughters. I was going, uh -huh. I'd just tell them when I get back. What you're referring to is the difference between rock climbing and ice climbing is, um, and you're right, I'm considered at best a fair rock climber. and uh, But I'm an... Uh, considered a professional, well-groomed ice climber. The difference is that in ice climbing, you rely on the technology of the sport and of the equipment a lot more than just strength. And then you get to what you were describing there is that I have an ice axe in each hand. I have what we call crampons or spikes on my feet, you know, and you have all this clothes on because it's cold. And, and then you, and you do have to know and this comes from practice of how hard to throw in the ice axe to hold your um, uh, your weight, but not hard enough so that the whole icicle comes down. And and, and never make a single mistake. And never make a single mistake. Or at least yeah. not a double mistake. So no. you have the other arm. <laughs> you can. And the other reference that you were you were talking to is um, we we study the chemistry of ice, we, uh, especially on, on the slope. And we know approximately these slope dynamics that are going to possibly cause an avalanche. And then as we're going up there, we'll take a shovel full of ice, uh, of snow, and we'll dig down and we'll, we'll look at what's called depth hoar. And how is the ice congealing together? If we find that there's a hard ice at the top and then there's a kind of a, a snow with a lot of uh, air in it, that's a, that's a red flag to us, okay? So I don't wanna uh, uh, bore you with all of that, but we look at the physics of snow, we look at the uh, dynamics of the slope, we look at all these things that are gonna make us, our decisions simpler. So we're going to go this way instead of that way based on what we find. So you really need to have at least some members of the team with a scientific mind as well as maybe a mystical mind <laughs> at the same time, which is an unusual combination. The mystical part to be able to commune with the mountain and the scientific part to be able to do it safely or at least maxim maximally safely. I love that you recognize that, Stuart. Uh, the... Um, 
I would go even further is what most people in life miss. They don't re most people don't realize that on a daily basis. It's a scientific experience. Let's just take uh, um, walking, which we take for granted. One foot in front of the other, your arms are swinging. But do you know why we swing arms? It's for balance. And as you get older uh, and your feet start to shuffle instead of being picked up, the swinging of the arms becomes the difference of you using a cane or using your arms. And the same thing in something as, as adventuresome as, as climbing, if you're not doing it proper, you don't have three times and you're out, one time and you're dead. And uh, you, you just nailed it. Uh, the synchronicity of the mental and the physical, uh, that, that is so important. Can't do one without the other. Yeah, I'd also like to touch a, a little bit more on the lightheartedness part of it. And I understand that you have a particular affinity for Winnie the Pooh and uh, Super Grover. <laughs> not what you expect of a mountain climber. Uh, I just love that. I mean, just that you have this kind of, not just uh, humorous, but a kind of childlike playfulness to the whole thing. Thank you for bringing that up because it's real important to me. One of the things in the, in that I believe in evolving to to become an adult is that we lose so much of the naturalness of life as a child when we become an adult. And I found out that forgetting that child naturalness made my life more difficult when I was uh, working for corporate, when I was working for the government, even when I was in the Navy. It was, it, was, it, was, it was just there. And I grew up with Sesame Street. And I also, when I got into my 30s, I decided to take a, a little look at all the different religions and philosophies of the life. So I, I did Buddhism. I did uh, Judaism. I did... Uh, all of them, even the Hare Kishners and, 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 and everything. I was raised in a Dutch Reformed, very Christian Reformed church uh, and there. And I enjoyed that. And I came upon Winnie the Pooh in one of my favorite books. I forget the author now, but explaining how, how we can incorporate Taoism into our life. I'm not a follower of Taoism. I don't live that, that, that philosophy. But so many of the practices of Taoism I've incorporated. And so I started reading about Winnie the Pooh. And then I, my favorite character on Sesame Street was Super Grover, who is known originally as Grover. And then when he puts the cape on and the helmet, you know, <laughs> he becomes Super Grover. And these two things as... Um, I always thought academic and corporate life were a metaphor for stupidity. And, 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 and by that I mean they're making everything harder in life. They're making everything academically um, so, so tough. We're not doing the very simple thing, observation, run to a solution. And you're speaking from a lot of experience in academia, right? You, you had a, do I a doctorate, so you, you stuck with it anyway, 
but then uh, realized its limitations after the fact, I guess. Yeah, and, and, and in fact, I, I, I humorously say PhD to me says postponing human development. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I, I mean, I have a doctor, and I, I thought of it as preparation mode living. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Did we say preparation H? Yeah, maybe that too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt. So you were saying that uh, in academia, you, you're not really grappling with the real world in so many ways. And is that what you mean by being harder? Or uh... I think, yeah, I, I, think, I think that's part of it. I think when I went to the PhD, or, or no, let me put it this way. When I was on a committee uh, of a PhD student, and he was from China, just a genius, okay? And he was working as a graduate student for one of the other professors on his, um, on his committee. And this guy was good at research. And he was just great. But they were keeping this guy around because he was so good. They weren't graduating him because they didn't want to lose his research. Oh, how funny. Aye. And, and I finally took him ahead and I said, You've got to make some mistakes. And he looked at me and said, <laughs> what do you mean? He says, I do my best. I said, okay, you, you do your best. I said, how long have you been here? <laughs> and, and I said, you need to get out of here. I said, you need to get out of here. And what they would do, they would tweak his dissertation, you know, and they said, oh, you got to do this for another three months, you know, and this and everything else. So I finally took him out for a beer and I said, okay, this is what you got to do. I said, just make a mistake in this formula here. <laughs> They'll pass you because you've already met everything. And he did. And a couple of years later, he called me up and said, thank you. L- let's talk a little bit about your self-perception. You prefer to be called a bum, which stands for beyond understanding and mediocrity. So do you want to explain that for us? <laughs> yes. Um, I, I, I do that humorously, of course. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And I came across the word bum because everybody, when they hear a bum, they think of someone living underneath a bridge, you know, with no money or, or whatever, okay? And um, I, I said, uh, I'm going to say bum, B-U-M, beyond understanding mediocrity. And so what I did was, is I took beyond understanding why people do what they do. And there's many different ways we can go with this, but everybody should realize that when they're trying to make something out of their life, they're letting society mold them. And they kind of fall into a job in corporate or uh, academic or, or whatever. But that's exactly what it, what it is. I don't understand. I want to be beyond the understanding of the normal, of the average, and of these people that are making life so difficult. And then, I don't want to live the M part of this bum. I don't want to be mediocre. And, and you don't it, want a mediocre life. I mean, you, you, you're embracing intensity in a sense. Absolutely. And, and, and I think all of us kind of crave that in, in a way, but so many of us are not willing to pay the price it takes to have that kind of intensity. You hit the nail on the head. Yeah, and that makes the difference in in wanting to uh, to climb mountains. But it makes the difference in whatever we do in life. 
you know, there may be something that we try to achieve. And if you don't have the willingness to do the discipline, first of all, and then uh, understand what the intensity is going to be, whether it might be starting a business, that's a huge example of this. And that's why so many people fail. First of all, they don't do the research of what it takes. Second of all, they're not willing to endure that. And, 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 and third of all, they get one failure and they say, we're done. And when we climb mountains, we have lots of failures. Yeah, everybody, I'd say 95% of the people that talk to me, they say, oh, wow, you're marvelous, you do this. And I said, I'm really not. It's just that I took the energy to do the discipline that it takes. Yeah, so it's a, a really interesting paradox about achievement that the higher achiever you are, the, almost the more humility you need to do it. <laughs> it's, I would totally agree with that, Stuart. Totally agree with that. And it, it doesn't always go together, but I, I, I'm a tennis fan, so you know, I think of like Federer and, and Nadal having that quality of, of humility in a way. They didn't start out that way. Certainly Federer did, and he was really obnoxious as an adolescent. His father once took him out of a tournament because he, Federer had a tantrum after, after a bad shot and just took him out. But it's really inspiring, I think, when someone reaches incredible heights and, and does gain that kind of humility. It's, it's very inspiring. Well, I, I, it's, it's what I've been taught by, by, by life itself. Even in my meditations, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, told over and over again, you can, you can do whatever, you can uh, uh, try to accomplish anything in life, but remember who you are. You can't do everything perfect. And you have to be able to roll with the setbacks and not let it uh, stop you altogether. Absolutely. You know, to, to figure out how to solve the problem. Hey. I, I want to quote from, from you again, if you don't mind. Okay. Uh, this is about your attitude toward nature. It is extremely easy to bask in the success of an adventure. It is extremely easy to ignore the processes of preparation, providence, and perseverance when dwelling upon the momentary pride of, I did it. But reality to the rational, logical person whispers, you're just a man, and nature is the superstar. Upon returning to base camp or home, I often wondered if it were real or if it were a dream. It's a beautiful passage. Thank you. Yeah, and I look at some of the things that occurred that shouldn't have happened. And by that I mean is that when you're on the Hillary step of, of Everest or you're at the intense Cassine route of uh, Denali and, and everything, that part of nature was not made for man to be there. And then you do that and you do it successfully. And to me, I had to realize, was it a dream? You know, I'm a fan of the holographic universe, and, and, and we don't have time to get into the quantums of that or anything else. But when I got back down, I said, was that actually me that did that? Or was it a hologram of my energy? 
that did that. Well, that would be safer. The latter would be safer if you did it that way. Yeah, it would be safer. <laughs> uh, leave, your, leave your body at home. Well, I, I, can, I can give you a, a realism of coming back to what people would say is a standard average life. When we get down, uh, it was the same team that did uh, Denali, that did Everest. Uh, and and uh, when we got down, the food is so bad at times when you're climbing up there that we went to six restaurants, one right after another, and our body wasn't ready for it. So guess what we did? We spent the next day in the, in the bathroom and throwing up and everything like that. Wow. And then you come back and, and you know that's kind of a telltale sign. You stupid idiot, why did you do that? You knew better. But we were relaxed from the discipline. Ah, so your body let go in a sense. That's right. Literally. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> I think um, also we might, might say too is that one of the, you, you brought this up before about whether or not I was scared at times, you know. And if one deals with the fact that this could be a hologram, or it could even have raised you to another dimension temporarily. Uh, and there, was that what protect, protected us? Was the fact that there was a different energy that was realizing? Was I still down there at base camp? Was I still at home? Well, it really speaks to how un unreal, how extreme this whole situation is. It's so extreme that it must... It's hard to compute even for the person who does it, <laughs> after the fact anyway. Well, I wouldn't talk about some of my more dangerous climbs for a good month or two after it, uh, not on a serious basis, because I had to rationalize it within myself first, and the, and the other men that did this also. So, Ron, I want to ask you about your more recent years. Uh, I know that you had a double knee replacement, double at the, no, was at the same time, which... Uh, if they didn't think you were crazy before, they certainly <laughs> thought you were crazy. Then. Even the doctors thought I was crazy. Yeah, and, and I, I imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you, the reason you did that is you were so eager to return to climbing, you thought that that would be a, a shorter recovery. And I think you didn't probably didn't want to accept that your age was ca catching up with you and that maybe your climbing career would be uh, coming to an end. I mean, it must have been very painful both physically and, and emotionally? There's a lot in that question. And first of all, to answer that, I'll say both both physically and, and emotional. I get bored easy. And so I had been told by the, by the surgeon, you know, that this was going to put me down for a couple months anyway, if not more. And so I said, I want to do this both at the same time. And, you know, I'm in my 70s at the time. I had it a couple of years ago. And, and, and the doctor says, nah, you can't find a surgeon that'll do it to you, you know. And he basically looked at me and said, you're old. And I said, do it, do it, you know. And he, he said, well, there's three things. He said, you have to be, you can't have any chronic diseases like diabetes or heart disease or anything like that. And I passed that. And, and then he said, you have to be in really physically good health. And those two are okay. The third one kind of caught me. He said, you have to be mentally stable. <laughs> <laughs> and if it were That's, that's for, when you're asked if, you know, 
having Winnie the Pooh as, as an imaginary f- friend is uh, qualifies. That's right. <laughs> That's right. You know, basically, it, it goes to how I uh, survived uh, mountain climbing. You know, is uh, there was these things that you you have to have in line, and it was hard doing the for uh, uh, doing both knee replacements, full knee replacements in in both of them. You, you know. You sit there and you're laying in bed and you have to go to the bathroom and you can't get up. Yeah, and if I could just inject a little uh, reference here, that you know, your dream, as you mentioned when we did our climbing of the organs uh, 15 years ago, was to become the oldest person to lead an expedition up Everest. Mm-hmm. You, you were going to do that in your 70s, mm-hmm. uh, which unfortunately didn't happen for other for political reasons. Right. Like Nepal wasn't able to give you the permit, but but you you really saw yourself as someone who's going to continue climbing quite late in life. I did. I did. And and I had a, I had a mindset that some people, probably most people would say it's just my ego showing through. But I have a very strong self-confidence and I love myself. And I I adhere to this even to this day that I really can't help anybody else unless I love myself. And, and and that's and that's what I live by now. And the other part of your question too is that: Am I slowing slowing down? You bet I am. I get people even now. My they say, "Oh, you look good. You know, boy, you're looking uh, uh, healthy and everything." And I say, "Yeah, that, that that that's pretty pretty okay, but I feel it myself. Mm-hmm. I know thoughts aren't coming that quick to me." Are there times when I'm when I'm hiking? I still hike, and do I stumble? You bet. And I never did that when we were going up uh, to the needles. Not even once. Not even once. Yeah. Well, I'd like to maybe end with a uh, quotation of that you quoted in in your okay. uh, in your letter that you sent me uh, of William Blake. To see a world in a grain of sand, and a heaven in a wild flower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand. An eternity in an hour. Of course, that's a very familiar poem, but it has a whole new richness thinking about your love of that poem and your love of a life of climbing. Yeah, and what I was referring to there was the holographic nature that I adhere to. Mm-hmm. And, and, and by, um, what Blake was, was writing about there is the enfolding of a part into the whole. Like, uh, for instance, that if you take a leaf of a flowering plant, the whole of the universe of the plant can be found within that one leaf. And then he goes on to the um, a more extensive one, if you look at uh, Talbot, who wrote that book, The Holographic Universe, is there, is, is, is his assertion is that the tiniest atom has the properties of the total universe. We just are limited in being able to access it. Well, it's a very beautiful, I think, uh, place to end on. You've really infused your life uh, with incredible meaning, both of the microscopic and macroscopic. And you've been gracious enough to share it with us here on Delving In and, and I know in many other settings. And you've touched many, many people in Las Cruces who you've taken on 
your hikes in the in the Oregon's as you know your very modest preparation for yourself I imagine also for, to keep in shape but for everyone else it was like maybe the most ambitious thing we've ever done physically so thank you so much for coming on I really enjoyed conversing with you thank you Stuart I really enjoyed this too thanks for having me I'm Stuart Kelter and you have been listening to the podcast edition of delving in originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.